Gethsemane. You ever heard that word before? Let me say it again, Gethsemane. I, you can pull it up on your, you could Google the word and it, they'll pronounce it for you and they pronounce it just like me. I'm sure mine has a little bit of a Southern twang to it, but it's this really important spot in the Bible. It's a place. And I hope that you will embed it in your mind and remember it when you get close to Easter uh, every, every year. If you grew up in Miss Betty's Sunday school class down there at uh, Radius Southside, I'm sure many times he talked about this Garden of Gethsemane. It's a super significant spot where Jesus went to pray the night before he was crucified. So Gethsemane was a place for crushing oil out of olives. It was uh, a garden-like enclosure. You can imagine like some rock walls wrapped around a garden that would have probably had olive trees in it as well as other plants. We don't know how beautiful it was. The walls could have been falling apart or maybe they were as beautiful as the pictures make them. But it certainly was a special place to Jesus. It seems that regularly when he was in Jerusalem, this would be a place that he would go pray, a place where he would go meet with his father. And the disciples knew about it. And so when they went there, this would have been a place they would have known to go. As I, as I was watching Jesus go to the garden and pray, and we'll read the story here in just a second, I couldn't help but think about the different spots over the course of a lifetime that have been really good to me as a place to meet with God. I hope, I hope you have one. Something special about just having that spot. When I was a young boy, it was the bathroom floor, which might gross some of y'all out, but I could, I could get alone in the bathroom early in the morning after I met the Lord and in early years of high school and late in middle school, and I'd just take some notes sitting on the floor with, with my little pad. It was just a great place to meet the Lord. Uh, my first church plant, I, I ran a landscape company, and I'd run around, cut grass uh, three or four days a week to pay the bills. And then I, often on my track of cutting the different yards that I cut, there was this little softball field that had a little brook by it. And I'd take an hour lunch break and go down beside that brook and walk and pray and commune with the Lord. What was really cool about that is oftentimes down at my little Gethsemane, right, my spot, my spot to meet with the Lord, I would go in somewhat insecure about what I was supposed to do next or what we were supposed to do with that young church next, and I'd come out with some clarity. I'd come out with uh, some confidence. And oftentimes I'd come out with confidence after hanging out with the Lord, and then, then it's really cool because then you go check it with Cheryl and, and see if that aligns with what's going on in her heart and check it with some other leaders. And it was just this great spot for me to go alone but also to take what I learned alone with the Lord to others and, and, and compare notes and check it. I hope you've got a Garden of Gethsemane, a spot, a place where you meet with the Lord. Probably Jesus and the disciples have been here many times, but this particular night, right, this is not going to be that sanctuary, that safe place. This is going to be the spot where he's going to be betrayed, it's actually, there's going to be a battle even before the betrayal. If, if you would with me, I'd like to call this the battle at Gethsemane. This is a place where there's going to be a raging battle. It's not the end of the war, and we wouldn't call it the whole war, but there's certainly a battle that's going to rage in this garden this night that is important for you and I to know about, for us to thank the Lord for in just a little bit. And uh, always remember when it comes to thinking about Jesus' death. The Battle of Gethsemane, let me read you a little bit of it. I don't know if you remember last week, we, we saw Jesus eat the Last Supper with the disciples. 
And if you remember, at, at the end, he introduces bread and juice, and he teaches them that the bread would represent his broken body, and, and the juice would represent his blood spilled. And then at the very end, they, they go out the door, and it says, and they walked out the door singing a hymn. He's just told them that they're going to remember his death, and they walk out the door singing a hymn. I can imagine him being in the back, and they're walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane. And here's some of the conversation on the way. This is uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 27. And uh, Jesus just looks at his boys. I imagine him walking as he says it. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I've risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee and, and then Peter does what he always does. He's got this immediate response. I don't, I don't know if you caught what Jesus just said. They just had this amazing last supper. They don't know it's the last supper. Had this amazing meal. They've walked out singing to him. And then Jesus, if he was Southern, he would have said, all y'all are going to fall away. And then he quotes this passage from Zechariah 13. Zechariah is a prophet in the Old Testament. And he quotes this just little brief verse. And he says, it says, I... God the Father, will strike, kill the shepherd. Jesus, I don't know if you remember this, but in John, he refers to himself as the good shepherd, capital G, capital S, good shepherd. And the sheep will be scattered. And who are the sheep? The, the disciples. So God, all the way back in Zacharias, is predicting, prophesying that he would strike down the good shepherd and that the sheep would be scattered. And Jesus has this cool statement afterwards. But after I've risen... I'll go ahead of you into Galilee, and Peter completely misses the last statement and focuses in on the beginning, and he says, even if all y'all fall away, like if, if all fall away, I will not. He's fixated on being a good soldier for Jesus. I appreciate him for that. I, I love this whole storyline as you watch Peter go through. You cannot miss Peter's failure on these final days of Christ's life. And I appreciate that because as I examine my own and I would think as you examine yours, you know some of these same failures. He purposed in his heart that he would not fall away. He says it multiple times. Jesus responds. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself would disown me three times. And Peter, arguing with God, Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others jumped in and piled in there with Peter and said the same. What I particularly like about this passage is as I watch Peter, who later we call him the Apostle Peter, and he writes First and Second Peter, and many folks believe that he dictated this book to Mark, that Mark's taking a lot of what he's writing from Peter's lips. Just uh, when you think about Peter instructing Mark to write this, his, the comfort that he has in his own skin now as, as a man who's been following the Lord for a while and has been faithful to God for years on end before the book of Mark, he, as he refers back to who he used to be, he's really comfortable talking about it. One, so you and I could learn from his life. Two, so we could rest in some of his failure. But... You can imagine him having Mark do this, write this down, and him looking over at Mark and just going, yeah, I did. I said I would never disown him. Then he told me that I would, and then I told him, absolutely not. I would not disown you. Man, it'd be good for us to just learn a little bit from Peter's failure in this passage. First of all, he, he talks a big game, and some of us do as well. 
We, we, we talk a big game. And then very quickly, in the very next verses, Jesus is going to take him on the toughest night of his life, and Peter's going to fall asleep. He's, he's just going to come up short. Verse 37 says this, then he returned. Jesus returned to the disciples, and he found them sleeping. And what does he say? Simon, Simon Peter, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for just one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. You can imagine Peter hearing this after he just told the Lord that he would never disown him. And now he's falling asleep when Jesus needs him most. Every time I read those two verses, they just stick me because there'll be times where uh, I really want to spend time with the Lord. Like the spirit is willing. But, but either I fall asleep or I fall prey to a distraction. I don't know about you. I walk and pray. It's a good, good thing for me to do. I like to walk and pray. And then a bird will come by or a loud truck will go by or whatever. And I will just find myself wondering who's driving the big truck as, as opposed to praying. And certainly many times, I can remember many times sitting on the floor in my bathroom as a boy, writing out notes and eventually dozing off. Anybody else? I mean, hopefully I'm not the only one. And certainly this is the apostle Peter. He's going to write books of the Bible. He's just struggling. His spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak. And I think for all of us, there should be some encouragement watching him, watching him walk through these last days of Jesus' life. Peter Talks a big talk, then he falls asleep, and then the guards come to take Jesus, and we're not going to have time to get to that. And you know who pulls out the sword? You're right, our boy Peter. <laughs> like throughout the passage, he refers to himself. It's almost as if he's embarrassed when he gets there. He, he doesn't even name himself. You have to find that in, a, in another gospel where, where he pulls out the sword, and he cuts off the ear of Malfrus, and, and Jesus has to heal it. And Jesus is like, put the sword down. That's not what this is all about. Peter thought that's what it was all about. And when, when the sword was not what Jesus was going to use, he ran away. He, he fled from the scene. And then most of you guys know the story. Maybe a few don't. Uh, in the end, Peter, is, he's uh, got this opportunity. He's in the presence of Jesus while he's on trial, and then someone confronts him and says that he was with Jesus, and he denies, and then he denies again, and he even just straight up lies, right, the third time. And then uh, the rooster crowed. It would have felt like you were downtown Columbia, right, where, where the game got noise is loud and it crows twice and you can imagine the guilt just falling on Peter and him running away in deep sorrow. Now, if you know the whole story, as we watch Peter struggle to stand with Jesus, in the reality, he's filling, fulfilling prophecy when, when they're scattered, but he wants to be so bad, he wants to be a good disciple and he's fighting for it for all he's worth and he just fails miserably. It's true of a lot of us in certain seasons. One of the things I'd love for you to remember is 1 Corinthians. It's another book in the New Testament, and Paul is writing down the order after the resurrection that folks saw Jesus. So Jesus dies. We'll get to that uh, here in the next week or two. And then we're going to get to Easter, and Jesus is going to rise from the grave. And guess who Jesus went to see first according to 1 Corinthians 15.5? Peter. It actually says he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. 
I just imagine him showing up at Peter's home. Maybe it's his resurrected stake, so maybe he walks through the door or through the wall or comes up through the floor. I don't know how he arrived to see Jesus or maybe, I mean, to see Peter. But when Jesus got there to see Peter, you can imagine this weight that was lifted off of Peter for his failures. And I'm here to tell you, as one who has received this mercy and grace from Jesus on the days when I've come up really short, he is persistent. He is a God who chases and pursues. And he'll come to you if you'll just, if you'll just say you're sorry. If you'll just reach out to him, he's already reaching out to you. We read the verse last week in, in Revelation chapter 3 that he stands at the door and he knocks. And he wants to be with you and he wants to eat with you and he wants to have conversation with you. Verses go on, verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane. I've said that a hundred times this week, and I'm nervous every time that I can't quite get it out of my mouth right. So you can repeat it and repeat it this week. Remember this place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John along with him, as you've seen him do in times past. So there's 12 disciples. Judas is betraying him, so there's only 11 here at the scene. And he's going to take three with him and leave eight. I imagine him leaving the eight at the gate of a stone fence into the Garden of Gethsemane. And he takes Peter, James, and John, who knows how far, uh, a number of yards further. And uh, the scripture says, he, he, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said. Stay here and keep watch. So he leaves Peter, James, and John, and he walks on to pray. But he has this crazy statement. Um, he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And thus the battle of Gethsemane begins. Now the war is going to be won on the cross and then eventually at the resurrection. But I want you, if you would, to dial into the sufferings in the Garden of Gethsemane, which will really give you more insight into what happens on the cross. So the sorrow is beginning to mount on Jesus. It says that he was troubled and deeply distressed. And I, I just want you to stew on this a little bit. Jesus is preparing for what's imminent, his death. And uh, he is going to show ridiculous restraint, right? So I don't know about you, but when I'm offended, I, I am ready to respond aggressively. Uh, oftentimes, if it's somebody I know and love, like my wife, if she says something to me that, that hurts my feelings or is against me, I, I have a little list, not literally, but in my pocket that I could pull out and, and hold that list up against her and say, you've offended me like one, two, and three. And, and then, this never works, by the way, but, and then there's this, there's this interaction that is not usually real healthy. She doesn't let me call it a fight. It's an argument or a disagreement, right? But there's, there's this moment where we bump heads as we go against one another. And Jesus is going to have men come arrest him that he knows everything they've ever done wrong 
on the planet. He knows the ones that are just straight up evil and he knows the ones that are just following the crowd and he knows the chief priest and the Pharisees and all the ugliness of their self-righteousness. He knows that the disciples are gonna, he just told them that they're going to flee, that they're going to deny and betray him. They're gonna, they're gonna run away from him in his moment of greatest need. He knows all of that, but he's not gonna hold any of them account, accountable for it. He's not gonna pull this list out of his pocket. He's not going to use the great power that he has and destroy all the guys coming to arrest him. He is going to, as the scripture says, like a lamb led to the slaughter, just allow them to walk him to the cross. Just ridiculous restraint. If you've ever had to show some restraint when someone's falsely accusing you of something, it is incredibly hard. For me, I lose sleep over it. It, it, it bothers me so much because I want to fight so bad. I want to defend myself or I want to attack and destroy. And I have to just keep that list in my pocket and I have to keep thinking in my head what the scripture says uh, uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, that I not, if I'm a true lover, I'm not supposed to keep a record of those, th- of those times I've been wronged. So I have to almost erase the list in my pocket. It's difficult. And Jesus, right here in the... In the Garden of Gethsemane, he's beginning to work through these things and what's about to happen. I imagine the very easiest thing he's going to do is show restraint in this moment because there's some other things that are weighing on him that you and I can barely comprehend. The scripture says that he's, he's overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. You ever had a panic attack? I've only heard about panic attacks. But some of my friends that have walked through them, it's like it. Is this going to kill me? It is so weighty. If you've watched a family grieve after a great loss of a loved one, um, oftentimes in the first few days, you don't actually get to see that grief to the full. But as the days pass and you have a friend who's lost somebody who they really love, a mother or a father, a child, a spouse, um, that grief seems to actually grow. And you watch them walk through the grief. And as it deepens, you really can understand what Jesus is saying right now. It's a sorrow to the point of death. It's destructive. can barely hold up under it. In most cases, when we're dealing with folks that are grieving in our community here at Radius, there are folks that are looking back on an event that was just devastating. In this case, Jesus is grieving, looking forward to an event that he knows all too well. He actually calls out to his dad in the following verses to his father. Going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that it was possible that this hour might pass from him. And he, he says this, Abba, Father, he says, everything's possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Did you catch that, Abba, Father? Abba is that Aramaic Father would have been translated into Greek from the Hebrew, but he's basically saying, Father, Father, Dad, Dad. He's speaking to the Father in an intimate way. He he wants everybody to get it. And you can actually kind of feel the grieving as he calls out to his dad. I don't know what it is about a child, but oftentimes when things are really hard and they're calling out, Mommy, Mommy, or Daddy, Daddy, they, they, they really want your attention and they actually step up their intimacy in their conversation. They'll, they'll repeat your name more than once. And Jesus 
I don't know exactly what he had in mind when he said, Abba, Father, but as you read it, you can't help but think of the grief in him reaching out to his father and his anticipation of being separated from his father on the cross. Man, just this week, it's been uh, one full year since Toby Kirkland, one of our elders here at Radius, uh, passed away. If you know Stacy, uh, if you know Stacy, you know Stacy, right? Like, cause she's got a big personality and she knows everybody. And uh, Toby and Stacy had really a special bond between the two of them. And watching them and hearing them talk about one another, and there's, there's just this depth of love between the two of them and understanding of each other. And so, for a full year, you've been able, if you know Stacy, to walk with her as she suffers the grief of the loss of Toby. You cannot miss that grief because of the depth of love between the two of them. And so for many of us that love Stacey, we're, we're praying that that grief would not just pass away because it doesn't just do that, but that there be healing, that there be comfort from the Holy Spirit in that moment. Here, here we see Jesus who has a perfect relationship with his father where there is no sin, there's no flaw, there's nothing that separates them in any way. It's perfect union between he and the Father. And he's anticipating the cross when the two of them are going to be separated, and he's doing that on your mind. He's doing it on purpose because his eyes are on you and me, because he loves us. And here in this moment, in this battle of Gethsemane, uh, he's questioning it in a healthy way. We won't go too far with that, but he's questioning it. He, he's actually going to ask, could this cup pass from me, from the Father? I don't know if you remember this. Gethsemane is a great way to uh, look forward to uh, the cross. When you try to understand what's happening on the cross, and, and early on the cross, I don't know if you remember this, Jesus has just been hung on the cross, and he looks out at the crowd and looks up to heaven, and you can imagine he just says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. So he's speaking to the Father in this intimate way, and at the end, right before he dies, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So there's seven things he says on the cross, and the first and the last they book in the sayings with this word father, this intimate conversation between he and his father in heaven. But in the middle, the fourth statement, he says this, my God, my God, why is thou forsaken me? And it, uh, it's a haunting statement. You can almost hear it ringing through the ages. As Jesus anticipates the separation from his father, and, and as he anticipates it in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's looking forward to this moment on the cross when it's going to be real. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he, he can't believe that he's not going to be able to call his dad father. Instead, he's going to call him judge. My judge, my judge, why have you forsaken me? So he anticipates what's also captured in these verses, this cup that is going to be given to him by his father. And I would imagine, though he is overwhelmed with sorrow about the separation between he and his father, there's this incredible fear about this cup. When you read in the Bible about the cup, 
it often refers to wrath. And so this cup that Jesus is looking forward to on the cross as he suffers this weight of sin that you and I have passed on to him as we learned last week, he's anticipating this cup of wrath that's gonna be poured out by his father on him. Nobody knows what God's wrath like. Like there's books written about it. We talk about it at times as humans. We know what it looks like to be righteously anger and take out justice on something. But nobody really understands it, but Jesus fully understood it. He knew exactly how much his father hated sin and how a holy God could not be in the presence of sin. He knew exactly how powerful and omnipotent, uh, an infinitely powerful God his Father is because he and the Father are one. And so he was anticipating that wrath of his Father being poured out on him on the cross. And so when he yells out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You can imagine Jesus with your sin in his body bearing the wrath of God in ways that you and I will never fully understand. So today when you come take communion, we took it last week and I asked you and I hope you did. I hope that you focused your mind, that you disciplined your mind and when you took the bread and the juice, you remembered his body broken and his blood shed. We actually get that a little bit. Most of us have bled at some point. Many of us have had a broken bone. We get it just a little bit, at least with that kind of physical suffering is. But today, what I would love for you to do is slow down your mind and focus on the spiritual suffering of Jesus on the cross. That he was separated from his father a love that had never been broken throughout all of eternity, which blows my mind. It had never been broken, but it was broken on the cross and he could not call his father dad on the cross because of your and my sin that he bore in his body. So when you come take that bread and juice, it's a celebration. It's, it's a moment where you share thankfulness to God that he, would, that he would send his son, that Jesus would go as the sent one to carry your sin, that he would separate himself from the father or be separated because of your sin from the father. And then that he would carry and bear the wrath of his father. I don't even know how to put good words on that. I don't know how, for, I could not paint a picture of that being ferocious enough for us to understand. But if you would, as you pray to come take communion, allow that to work through your mind as you focus on Jesus. Let me just comment on, on, on a couple more things that I think could help you in the coming weeks. What I, I love about Jesus' prayer is that he prays, he comes back, we saw him, he comes back to the disciples and he says, couldn't y'all even stay awake? He struggles with the Lord. There's, uh, the other gospels capture that struggle in other ways, the way he sweats, even, even with potentially blood in his sweat. We don't even know exactly how that thing worked out, but there was this intense sorrow to the point of death in his prayer. He's working through, really, do I have to fight this battle, he asked the Father? Do, I have, do we have to do it this way? One of the uh, Gospels actually speaks of an angel that comes and gives Jesus a bit of rest and comfort. And then Jesus goes back to praying. He's praying his way to peace with the Father's will. 
We're talking about the God man, Jesus, all God and all man. And he's working his way through what the fathers asked him to do to where he has peace with it. So you see the first one where he says, do I have to fight the battle? And then he prays again. And you almost can imagine God the Father through an angel sent says, yes, this, this, is, this is my will. And then Jesus says, help me as I fight this battle. Like this, like this shift. As you read the other gospels, you kind of feel this shift of do I have to fight it? Do we have to fight the battle this way? And God the Father, yes, this is, this is our way to fight the battle of sin for mankind. And then as the Father says, yes, Jesus obeys and begins to ask for the strength to fight the battle. And by the time he's done praying the third time, if you read the passage, he actually looks at disciples and says, let's go. Right? He says, let's go. He knows what the Father wants. He's made confident by the Father for the work, and he walks his way to the cross. It's a great reminder for me and you as we watch Jesus pray and work through the most difficult battle in the history of the world, really. His life, death, burial, resurrection. As he walks through this incredibly difficult time, he does it in prayer. And the first time he prays, he's... he's just completely transparent with what's going on in his heart. And I, I, I would advise you to do the same. Man, when something really hard's coming, like, and you can see it coming, start praying and asking the Lord. Even this week, I've had to take uh, some time. It took me a couple nights with the issue that I've got going on that I needed to solve. I could not get comfortable with it. And the first night I prayed, I was really unsuccessful. I woke up in the night and I was uptight, even felt uncomfortable physically and, and tried to work my way through it, but then kept laboring. And eventually I was able to, write, actually right on this page right here, I was able to write down some thoughts that I felt like the Lord gave me, that gave me some peace. If you got a child away from the Lord, having walked that road, man, laboring in prayer with Cheryl to the point of peace, was difficult but wonderful. And Jesus demonstrates this. And by the end of that long walk with Cheryl, as we prayed for our child who'd been away from the Lord, there was just this moment of peace. And uh, it didn't mean it was all over. It just, there, there was this ability to look her in the eye and let's go. Let's get back to work. Let's do what the Lord's asked us to do. And we'll keep praying. But there's this rest that comes from laboring to that point. I want that for us at Radius. So as you take this juice and this bread, man, if there's something heavy on your heart, speak it to the Lord first. And then as you walk up to take it, focus your mind on the spiritual suffering of Christ on the cross. All the work that he did to deal with your sin so that you'd have the freedom to come take this bread and juice and celebrate his broken body and spilled blood. Let's pray together. Jesus, it's uh, humbling to even try to explain what you went through in these last days on the earth. It's really difficult for me to understand your physical suffering on the cross, but it's even more difficult for me to understand the wrath of your Father. So we, we as a body, we thank you 
for working through the battle of Gethsemane all the way to the cross at Golgotha and um, taking on that wrath so that we would not have to take it on. We are so thankful that you view us as righteous because of your blood and body broken and that the Father uh, placed all of the judgment on you. It's mind-blowing. We don't fully understand it, so please help us. Help us understand as much as we can even this morning. As we come take bread and juice, Lord, sear in our, our mind and memory that, that word Gethsemane so that we could consistently remember the great suffering you went through to give us such a great life. Thank you for this morning, and as we look forward to a couple weeks from now to Easter, we uh, get excited about Easter because of the things that you did in Gethsemane, Lord, and then what you did on the cross. Um, thank you for giving us life and giving us the opportunity to look forward to eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.